I want to start out just by asking you a question this morning. How long has it been since you felt like you needed rest? How many would say they've needed rest in the last month? How about in the last week? How about in the last day? How about since you got up this morning? (laughs) That's introduction enough to capture you this morning. Because this morning we are going to learn what God has done in Christ to give us rest. We're going to learn what God has done in Christ to give us freedom. We're going to learn what God has done in Christ to set us free to walk in that freedom. Now, we're talking in Isaiah in these servant songs in the spiritual realm predominantly, but I want you to think in your heart, no hands here, but how many of you have needed rest because you haven't lived according to the word of God? How many of you have needed rest because you've thought you needed more on your plate to do than God thought you needed? How many of you have needed rest because you've tried to to do good things without depending on his Holy Spirit and his word? Your jobs, your parenting, crucifying sin. You see, when we do all these things without depending upon the God who bought, redeemed us, saved us, set us free, then we're going to, by definition, need rest. We're going to, definition, by definition, going to need a refreshing from the word to remind us how we walk according to that finished work of Christ. Now, last week when we looked at this, this servant song, this second servant song, we looked at half of it. We looked at basically the part where the, not basically, we looked at the part that the servant was speaking. And now we're going to turn today to the part where Yahweh, the father, talks to his servant and confirms the mission that we learned about last week. Remember that we learned from the servant himself his mission last week. Now the father will confirm that mission this week and in his confirmation reminds us of all the things that are done through the finished work of Christ and uses language that opens up other passages of scripture to us to remind us that these are eternal truths. Yes, there's a, there's a nation in captivity and they're, they're awaiting their deliverance from Cyrus. True statement. And they will receive that physical deliverance and, and receive many of the blessings physically that are talked about in this passage. But there's also the spiritual need. Remember how we ended the last chapter. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So the promise leading up in chapter 48 is that that they will be delivered and God will raise up Cyrus as his deliverer, but physical deliverance doesn't solve it all because there's still deliverance from sin that's required. So this servant song is opening up further what we learned beginning in chapter 42 in the first servant song, and it will open up a little bit more into the suffering of this servant, which will be fully developed in the fourth song. It'll open up a little bit more of what the mission of the servant will accomplish in the lives of God's people. And it'll also open us up to how the New Testament writers understood this servant song in their own ministries. So if we need rest today, let's listen to Isaiah. Remind us of the finished work of Christ. 
Stand together as we read. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 49 so we can remember the first part of this servant song. And remember, we talked about this last week, that sometimes the commentators will stop, they'll mark out the servant song just as being 1 through 6. But I think really the response of the Father belongs with that. The praises that follow each of these servant songs belong with that as well. So verse 1 is where we started last week. Verse 7 is where we'll pick up our sermon today. Let's hear verses 1 through 13. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. Yahweh called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, this is the servant speaking, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet, surely my right, my justice is with Yahweh and my recompense with my God. And now Yahweh says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him, For I am honored in the eyes of Yahweh, and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? Or it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says Yahweh, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of of Yahweh who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says Yahweh, in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountain a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For Yahweh has comforted his people, and he and will have compassion on his afflicted. The grass withers and the flower falls. You may be seated. So last week we saw... I divided this sermon up for outline in two um, major points because there are two people speaking. So this second servant song, we are shown two speeches describing the mission of Yahweh's servant. 
two speeches regarding describing the mission of Yahweh's servant. Last week we saw the servant speaks to the ends of the earth. And in that, in verses 1 through 3, we saw Yahweh, the servant saying, Yahweh called him to be true Israel. And remember, the, the term Israel, back and forth, we, we have this, the servant being Israel, but also Israel speaking of the people, of the nation. The servant also says, Yahweh is my justice and reward, and I trust in him. So even though he was confessing, maybe from the time of his, of his probably from the time of his incarnation, most clearly his, 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 the, the, the discouragement that he would feel as the incarnate God-man, even in the garden and places like that, where, where he's crying out to the Lord, but yet he still says, as a model for us as well, yet... He says, surely my right, my justice, my mishpat is with Yahweh and my recompense or, or my reward is with my God. And the third part, he says, Yahweh commissioned me to bring Jacob's remnant back to him, but also it's too light of a thing just to be Israel, to be a light to the nations as well. So that's what we saw last week. And this week we'll begin in verse seven where we see Yahweh speaking to his servant and the first thing we see in verse 7 is that nations will despise you, but I will bring them to their knees because I am faithful and chose you. Look at verse 7. Thus says Yahweh, now remember in verse 5 we've already seen, um, and now Yahweh says, but that was the servant telling us what Yahweh had said. Now we have Yahweh entering into the picture, entering into this speech, and him giving the affirmation to his servant of the mission that he's called him on. Thus says Yahweh, verse 7, and he describes himself the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. So we know here that we're talking about the nation of Israel, right? The, the servant doesn't need a redeemer. The servant is the, the, servant is the Messiah. We, we've made that case already. That case will build through the servant songs. So this mention of Israel is the mention of the nation. And Yahweh says, I am the nation's redeemer and I am the nation's holy one. Common terms that we have seen throughout Isaiah. We won't spend any more time here on them today. Um, but this this self-designation of him being the Holy One of Israel and the many times that it's spoken in Isaiah reminding us of the character of God behind all of his work. Two, third line of verse seven, one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Now here's where we pick up some of that, or not pick up, but foreshadows some of the language from chapter 53 that we will see in the fourth servant song, this, this language of his, of his suffering and despised by men, um, deeply despised, uh, abhorred by the nation, the nation to whom he sent. Remember what John says in his first gospel in the prologue. He said that, that the Messiah, the Logos, Jesus, came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Remember that? And then he said, he said more than that. We get the promise right there in the gospel in John chapter one, don't we? He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And we go on to learn about the word that became flesh. So he is despised. 
He is one that when he comes to human beings, they, they disparage him, they despise him. We see that in all of the, the Holy Week where he is mocked and beaten and ridiculed, done by both the Romans and the Jews throughout that time. The Jews are expecting something different than they get, and they're just not happy with it. And the Jewish leadership are wondering how this one is going to be the king, how this one takes over their slot, their spot, their point of favor. Deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Remember when he was put on trial by all the rulers, and all of them to varying degrees either condemned him or washed their hands of him. He became their servant in the midst of that. But God has promised that he would raise up a servant over those rulers, didn't he? Look what he says when he begins speaking. This is a description of the son of the servant that he's speaking to. The one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. That language of Isaiah 53. The servant of rulers. But now he speaks directly to him. You may be the servant of rulers, but kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Now, this is just the opposite, right? Where would the kings be? The kings would be seated on the throne, and everyone else would come in and bow before them and kiss their scepter, stand before them. The kings become seated all the time, but they shall arise. The princes, they are the lesser magistrates who stand around, and they're always standing in attendance. And instead of bowing to the king on the throne, the human king, they will bow to this king. The kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. They shall bow before him. Revelation 1 tells us what? That that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. So the one who comes to redeem his people and comes in humility comes again and demonstrates his true rule, his true authority. Why? Look at the last part of verse 7. Because of Yahweh, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you, This is my character, Yahweh says, behind the mission that you're on. He's also the character of the Son as well, as he comes. He's the exact representation of the Father. But this is is Yahweh saying, I'm sending you my servant, and I am faithful so your mission will succeed. I have called you so you will succeed. Remember, this has always been based on the character of God. If God's character is what the Bible says it is, and it is, then everything he does matches his character. If he's faithful, he will be faithful to carry out because his word does not come back void. If he is called, that calling will not fall on deaf ears. Amen? This is what God does. And the servant is encouraged here. Remember, he's confirming the mission and he's encouraging the servant. Now, this is the language that is picked up in the New Testament. Keep your finger uh, right there in Isaiah 49, and I want you to turn to Philippians, a very famous passage. You're going to know it, but I want you to see, set your eyes on it. Don't just take my word for it. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Paul has consistently been arguing for the Philippians and he will continue to argue for the Philippians to be of one mind and to have their character of life match the character of their Savior. Look at verse 5. We'll jump in right in the middle of this passage. Verse 5. 
Philippians 2, 5. Have this mind, among, a common word in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or, or maybe was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, you notice that's the third time form has been used here, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now that is the point of the mission of the servant, is it not? This is what the servant comes to do, because this is what's required to redeem God's people. But look, verse 9, therefore, because, because of this, because he accomplishes this in obedience to the Father, carrying out the Father's faithful will, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is New Testament language, picking up the language of Isaiah's servant, isn't it? Reminding us that this is why Christ came, and he's going to go on. He's already said, you need to have this mind in yourself, that humble mind. You, you, you don't have the mind of the, of the reward Christ got. You have the mind of his humbleness as he walked on the face of the earth and endured such shame and suffering. Then when you do that, you treat each other in the same way, Paul says. Then that life leads to being the evidence that you are united with the Christ and all of his blessings become yours. And you will spend eternity worshiping him. All of this is, is what Isaiah is pointing to. Remember, there is a, a, a sixth century group of people who are getting ready to be delivered, the remnant delivered back to their homeland. But the overarching theme here is the spiritual truth behind all of these verses. Back to Isaiah chapter 49. The second passage that Yahweh begins. He first says, nations will despise you, but I will bring them to their knees because I am faithful and chose you. The second part of his speech, I promise to give you as a covenant to the people, beginning in verse 8. Look at these wonderful words. Thus says Yahweh, in a time of favor, I have answered you. Now, in the context of Isaiah 49, where is that? I think that's exactly what God responds with the plea in verse four. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Lord, if you will let this cup pass by me, do so. But not my will, but your will. That prayer that's uttered, the prayer that he goes away to pray, the prayer that he's constantly engaged in to remain faithful to the mission and to know what that mission is in his incarnate form, to know what the mission is and to be reminded of his connection with the Father. This is how God answers him. In a time of favor, I have answered you. And then in that parallelism that we see so often, the whole book almost of Isaiah in poetry, in, the, in a day of salvation, I have helped you. So in a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. So what is the day of salvation? What is the, what is the, the time of favor? Well, this idea of the time of favor and the day of salvation brings forth all of these connections in our Old Testament theology. But first, 
I want you to turn to keep your finger in Isaiah, and I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. One of those places that New Testament writers, one of the many places that New Testament writers quote from the book of Isaiah. Actually, turn to 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to lead into the quote in 6 2. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How many people have memorized that verse? It's like the first verse you learn in the navigator's memory system. I guess I'm dating myself here. Do they still have the navigator's memory system out for availability? I guess not. Well, if you would have gone through that, that's verse number one. Now here's the, this is free, okay, this is an aside. The struggle with memorizing scripture by somebody else's program, if you just learned the verse, is you may not know the context. So for years I knew this verse, but it took me a while to learn the context. So when you're memorizing scripture, remember this is a freebie, when you're memorizing scripture, memorize it in context. Know what that passage means in the context that the writer used it. Otherwise, that scripture is going to come to your mind and you may use it in the wrong way because you don't remember its context. That's freebie. Back to the script, okay? There's no script really. But Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For, he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So the New Testament writers help us understand that that the day of salvation that Isaiah speaks about is when Christ has come and done his work and then he sends his people out to be on the same mission. Yahweh, the Father, sends the servant on the mission that we're learning about in Isaiah 49. The New Testament just described one aspect of that mission in 2 Corinthians. And then, because we are sent to do the work that God sent us to do, that Christ sends us out to do, then we are sent to do the same things. And we only have a ministry of reconciliation if the servant in Isaiah 40, 49 did what the faithful God sent him to do. Amen? That's how we have the mission of reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation. So back in Isaiah 49, in a time of favor, I have, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you specifically fulfilled in the days of Jesus in his flesh, in the day that he came and he lived and he died and he suffered and he died on the cross and he rose again and was seated at the right hand of the Father, specifically those days. And he says, 
in the middle of verse eight, I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Now that word keep is the same word, the same Hebrew word that's in verse six that refers, in verse six where he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. The preserved, same word as keep here. So God preserves the remnant, but he's also going to preserve the servant. He's going to keep him. He's going to keep him all through his task. There's no way anyone will overtake him or overcome him until his task is done. There's no way anyone will do anything to this servant as the incarnate God-man until he fulfills the task exactly the way the Old Testament scriptures say that he will. And we will learn all about that how-to as we go through the third and fourth servant song. A little bit here in the second, but specifically in the fourth and the third as well. And he says, I will give you as a covenant to the people. Where have we seen that before? You remember where we've seen that? In the first servant song, right? 42.6, the same promise is made. So we talked about it a lot there. I won't reference everything we talked about there. But he has given, isn't it strange wording? Isn't it wonderful wording? He's not given as this is a true statement, but this isn't what Isaiah says here, as the mediator of the covenant. The New Testament brings Jesus as the mediator of a new and a better covenant, right? The book of Hebrews is so clear on that. So he could have said that, but he says that, that this servant himself is given as a covenant. And look where he gives it, a covenant to the people, not to the nation, but to the people. We don't have that described for us quite yet, but we have had it described in the first half of this servant song where the servant speaks, haven't we? That it's, it's a little thing, too little of a thing to just be Judah, the, the remnant of Israel, that it's also for the salvation that he brings us for the entire earth. So he, key, he gives them as a covenant to the people. Which covenant are we talking about? We're talking about the new covenant, the covenant that is in his blood, the covenant that we are going to celebrate, that the right to do from the Lord's Supper when we come together as a body, remembering what Christ has accomplished and feed upon that truth spiritually so that we are fueled in our love for God and Christ and in our obedience to him in the world. He has given as that covenant, the covenant in my blood. This is the one who will come and do everything that is needed to fulfill the Old Testament law and to bring the new covenant into being, the one who perfectly keeps it according to the way the father said that he would. I will keep you. He will protect you, I will guard you, I will give you as a covenant to the people. And what does this accomplish? To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. So what are we talking about here? If this is Jesus come in the flesh, This is the servant in his ministry. And this is Jesus come in the flesh to redeem his people, Jew and Gentile. It's too little of a thing for it just to be one nation. It is all the world. The the complete teaching of the New Testament gives, or the Old Testament gives us that. It's not just a few select verses. If this is the case, are you and I waiting for a piece of dirt? We are not. Not, were, were the returning exiles going home to their land? Absolutely they were. That was the promise. That was where God dwelt for them. That's where God set up that they would worship and worship rightly, that he would be their God and he, and they would be, that he would be their God and he would be, he would be caring for them. 
and they would rightly worship in there. So it was right for them to come back to the land. But all of that was giving them the presence of God among them. Now we have Jesus who has come and lived and died and sent his spirit, both Christ and his spirit living in us. We are now the temple. So we are not looking for a piece of dirt. We're looking for the restoration that that is promised all through scripture, the new heavens and the new earth. We're looking for, if you look at that word heritages, that's, that's meaning their inheritance, their inheritance of the land. The land was all tied to the, to the people, to the, uh, to the tribes and to the clans and to the families. And I'm setting up where we're going from this for the year of Jubilee, but that's what it was all tied to. They had their right to that because God gave them that right. And part of this restoration is using the language of the physical restoration to bring us the reality of the spiritual forgiveness of sins in which we walk into our inheritance which is the most basic level and grand and glorious level is Christ himself, amen? That's our inheritance. But our inheritance is the new earth where we will, where we will rule and reign when we will worship forever face to face with our Lord and Savior and there will be no need of a son because, or a temple or a son because Christ will be there shining the eternal light. This is the place that we look forward to, a restored, completely sinless relationship with our Savior, That's what we are waiting for, and it's using the physical language to prepare us for that. The prisoners, they're told to come out, come out of their cells, come out of whatever is holding them in bondage. To those who are in darkness, appear. Well, you can't be seen if you're in darkness, but if you're coming out of darkness into light, the command is clear, appear, walk into the light. And we've seen over and over in Isaiah this contrast between light and dark and looked at all those New Testament parallels with that. I'm not going to do that again today, but I do want to go back and pick up the words at the, at the beginning of this verse, in a time of favor. Now, we established that time is when Christ came. Remember, the apostles said, that's when this verse is fulfilled. But it's picking up a rich string of Old Testament theology that we need to interact with. And we'll interact with it again in chapter 61, so we won't cover everything here. But this is the language of the year of Jubilee, the, the year of favor. I want you to keep your finger in Isaiah 49 and turn to Isaiah 61. This is where we'll see it again and we'll fill out the rest of our understanding of the year of Jubilee when we get there. But this is in the third section of Isaiah. Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of Yahweh, or the Spirit of Adonai Yahweh, Lord God, is upon me. Because Yahweh has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prisons to those who are bound. That is the say to the prisoners, come out. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion. And he goes on to describe this. But what is interesting, when we get to Isaiah 61, we'll see where Jesus quotes this passage in in the synagogue in Luke chapter four. And he stops right before the phrase that he says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops right there. He does not say, and the day of vengeance of our God. Because he is coming in his first coming to save those who are lost. And he says, this passage is fulfilled in your hearing. 
So there again, Jesus is affirming that the, the, um, the year of the Lord's favor comes when he comes. Now I want you to turn to Leviticus 25. If you were with us when we went through all of this, you'll hopefully remember a lot of what we covered then. As I said, we're not going to go through all of this. But the year of Jubilee is talked about specifically with the seventh year, but the year of Jubilee is talked about as the, as the time or the year of the Lord's favor. Look at verse 1. We're not going to go through all of this. It, it talks about a lot of things, but we're not going to go through all of this. I just want to pull out a couple of things to help us understand Isaiah 49 and its new covenant application for us a little better. Leviticus 25.1. Yahweh spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to Yahweh. For six years... You shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather it in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female servants and for your hired servant and the sojourner who lives with you and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be food. So there we're talking about the the Sabbath year, six years of, of harvesting and planting and pruning and one year of rest. I want you to notice that the the land rests, and if the land rests, what do God's people do? They rest as well, right? So the concept of rest is right here in the middle of it. This is the language that's used in Isaiah 49, Isaiah 61. This whole understanding of the year of Jubilee is the key to understanding the 70 weeks prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. This is a very important concept for us to grab and to grasp onto and to learn. Now we move in verse 8 to the year of Jubilee. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all the land. Now let's just stop right there. On the day of atonement, what is in their mind in the 50th year when that ram's horn, which is really what ju- the word for jubilee means, it refers to a ram's horn, this, this ceremonial ram's horn. What, what is in their mind if it's blown and, and this is to be celebrated and announced on the day of atonement in the 50th year? They're thinking about their sin being covered, aren't they? They're thinking about God wiping it away. They're thinking about the forgiveness that they are finding up to that point in their Lord and everything that God said for them to do. So in the idea of Jubilee, it's foundational that we understand that it's foundational upon God's redemptive work for his people. It's that, that's what they're thinking. They're rejoicing on that day anyway. But now this year, the 50th year, all kinds of other things happen. So there's rest, but there's also the rejoicing of God's work with their sin. Look at verse 10. And on that day, and you shall consecrate the 50th year 
and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Any history people know where that, that is found, that phrase right there? On the Liberty Bell. The Liberty Bell has that phrase inscribed on it. You shall consecrate the 50th year and, this is the phrase, proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. So there's the idea of redemption. The next verses are going to tell us how that works, how slaves are freed, how property is returned to the proper clan. You see, in the nation of Israel, if things were done according to God's plan, then nobody owned, nobody owned property forever. God owns the property. How do we know that? Look at your text in verse 23. Verse 23 of Leviticus 25. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. So there are strangers there with God, and he's given them the land. It's been given to them, right? This is what happened when all the land was dispersed to the tribes and then given it out to the clans and the families. God said you could have it. It was theirs, but to be stewards of, of what God gave them to do. So if you got in financial trouble and you sold your land, you would sell your land for a price based on how many years were left before the Jubilee. That's what the price would be. A lot of years left, then you'd get a lot more money for it. Consequently, on the other side, if you were buying somebody's land, you would pay a higher price because you had more years of yield. Because in the 50th year, everything returned to the way God said before. There is redemption involved from slavery. Also involved in the day of Jubilee is this idea that they're to be kind and they're to be generous with sojourners among them and their brothers. So the, the, the year of Jubilee brings the idea of forgiveness of sin. It brings the idea of redemption. It brings the idea of rest. But it also brings the idea of trusting in God, doesn't it? Wait a minute. You mean for a whole year, every seven years, I can't tend to my land? And then in the 50th year, it's going to be two years in a row that I can't tend to my land? Look at verse 20. Of Leviticus 25. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year, if we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop, and shall eat, old, eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives." So this required faithfulness on the part of the people, didn't it? Because they needed to trust in the faithfulness of God. They needed to trust that his word is true. Isn't that a challenge for you sometimes? To trust that God's word is actually true and it will accomplish what he says it will? It's a, it's a constant challenge and the year of Jubilee and the Sabbath years, they, they give that to the people Forthright, this is an opportunity for you to trust me and receive my blessings with the next part of this is obedience, isn't it? If you would, we, we're not going to take the time to do it, but if you go to the next chapter in Leviticus, you would find out that when the people are disobedient to God, that God promises to send his wrath upon them and to send them into captivity. And while they're in captivity, guess what happens? The land gets its rest. 
that it deserves. The land that it was supposed to, the rest that it was supposed to get, it gets while they're in captivity. The captivity is given, among other things, for their, it's given for their disobedience, but one of the things that happens is the land is restored. The land is given its rest that the people refuse to do because they refuse to obey God and to trust him. So we have the idea of rest, the idea of faith, the idea of obedience, the idea of, of redemption. But also we have the idea of lordship. I want you to just return one more time to verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. God is Lord over all of this. So if so much more we could say about this. We'll cover more when we get to chapter 61. But all of this is to bring about hope in the people, isn't it? It's the hope that God's promises will come to pass according to what he says. Here's the way, and and if you want to do research on this, this is just basic hermeneutics. Go to a good Bible dictionary and look up the year of Jubilee. This is what the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible says. In the 50th year, the people lived in the light of the forgiveness of sins, walked by obedience in harmony with God who redeemed them, and in freedom from toil, received from the ground its life-sustaining benefits without any sweat on their brow. It was a sort of Eden restored, the curse momentarily held in abeyance, but also a prolonged foretaste of the, com- of the coming day when the promises would all be fulfilled. The blood of the covenant efficacious without hindrance. The prisoners of hope, in other words, all those who waited in hope for their release, they're freed and the trumpet of liberation heard throughout the world. The Jubilee year is a limited but real way foreshadowed what would yet be the eternal inheritance and bliss of the people of God, all the people of God. Turn back to Isaiah 49. Now listen to these words in Isaiah 49 with all of that in our minds. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages or uh, uh, inheritance, saying to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear. And this language is picked up all the way through the scriptures, all based in this promise of God in the year of Jubilee. If you go through the, the prophecy in Daniel 9 and see what that leads us to, it is the fulfillment of the year of Jubilee is, is, is how we understand that prophecy of 70 weeks. We also see Jesus saying of himself, as I said in Luke chapter 4. So this is a Christ-centered, Christ-dripping passage. But this is what the Bible is about, isn't it? In the introduction to the Jesus Story Bible, which is a great story Bible for your kids if you don't have this, by Sally Lloyd-Jones, she writes this. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. Now, you and I know that, but from the introduction of a children's Bible, isn't that something that makes your heart swell? 
just to hear all the pages of scripture just drip with Jesus. They whisper his name at every corner. Isaiah 49 is not an exception to that. He says, I promise to give you as a covenant to the people. The third thing he says, very familiar, I promise to sustain and restore your people. Look at the second half of verse 9. They shall feed along the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, These shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and the west, and these from the land of Syene. I want you to see the common language here is where God talks about clearing the road. This is what we learned in Isaiah 40, um, the the first promise of comforting my people, comfort, comfort my people. And he talked about uh, making the mountains low and making roads clear that people could walk the road of salvation leading to the Messiah. He's using that language again, but now he's saying they're not going to be hungry. He's going to provide for them all along the way. There are going to be places for them to eat on their own all the way through. We think in a spiritual terms on this, God has provided food for us, hasn't he? He provided food for us as he brought us to Christ, but he also provides food for us in Christ every single day. It's from his word. Luke demonstrated that so clearly just in the first hour that we were together this morning. This is how we feed upon God. He promises to do that, and he has done that when he reveals himself through his word as he draws someone to salvation. That's what's being shown to us here. There won't be any hunger or thirst. They will, they will feed. They're not scorching wind. Nothing will strike them in the weather. It's using all of these physical um, pictures to show us that for the people that God has chosen, nothing will get in his way of saving them because he is faithful and he has called his servant and his servant will succeed in his mission. But he also says these wonderful words. He has pity on them, will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. We heard Psalm 23 read earlier. But this leading and guiding, such an important term for us, isn't it? It's such an important term that he, when God is calling his elect, he is leading them and guiding them right into the salvation at the time that he deems fit through the power of his spirit and the preaching of the word. And once we're saved, the Holy Spirit continues to lead us. And it can be so trivialized. I remember um, the first church that I was in, there were two men who prayed uh, many years ago, two men who prayed, and all the time, every time they prayed, they would pray, and thank you, Jesus, lead, guide, and direct us, amen. That's how they did every prayer. Lead, guide, and direct us, amen. Now, I knew those men, and they didn't really let God lead, guide, and direct them. So this wasn't something that was tagged on because this was, their, this was their life verse or something. This was just something that was words for them. But it can't be just words for us, can it? God leads us through his word. He directs us through his word. He directs us when we're immersed in his word, praying to God and in submission to his spirit, even as he guides our thoughts in the ways that he wants them to go. I read a story this week of a man who was in a church, and he hadn't been there very long, and this woman came up to him after a worship service, and she, she, she was clearly despondent, and she said, would you pray for my husband? He left us, my family, my kids, and he's now living with two women, 
And he said, well, is he a believer? Well, he says he is. He's the one who led me to Christ, she said. And he said, well, yes, I'll talk to him. Where can I find him? And she said, I don't know. He calls me when he wants to talk to me, but I don't know where he is and I don't know how to reach him. So he, how is he supposed to do that? He prayed with her, went about his business. During that week, he was out in his yard working and doing a big major renovation in his yard. And he ran out of some sort of plant that he needed to finish the job. He was hot and he was sweaty. He was done. He didn't want to do it. But he said, we're going to finish this today. So he gets in his car. He goes to his normal greenhouse that he gets his, his plants from. They're out of what he had. No, it wasn't they were out. They were too expensive. He wouldn't pay the price. So he drives another mile further to another place who has what he needs for the price he wants to pay. He gets them and he's in line. And he looks up at the cashier. And the cashier's name tag has the same last name as the woman he talked to. And so he said, is that your name? And he made a joke about it saying, you know, the obvious dumb question. The guy thinks I'm an idiot right now. He's got a name tag that says his name. But he said, I wanted to be sure there wasn't somebody else's name tag. He said, yeah, that's my name. And he said, well, are you married to so-and-so? And he said, yes. What is that to you? And he said, I'm here to talk to you about your marriage. And he proceeded to talk to him about his marriage. Now, the story that I read did not tell me the end result, but the end result, it is not that it's unimportant, but for us, did God lead him into that? Absolutely he did. He led every aspect of his day to to make him run out of what he needed and not go to the first store, to go to the further store and to get in that cashier's um, line and nobody else's when he wasn't on break and he was on duty and he was waiting. And the man sees his name, and what could, he say, what could he have said? Man, I'm just done today. I am so hot, and I'm so tired, and i got to get these plants in. This can't be the same guy. Paid the bill and walked away. But because he had prayed for that man, he immediately recognized the name and walked into the blessings of whatever ministry happened that day. We were sitting with people right in our church this last week, and somebody told the story of just feeling impressed to send a check for a certain amount of money to people that were, I don't remember where they lived, but it was a ways away. And it was an odd amount. $76, I think, was the amount. And he said, said, am I really? He just was impressed this way. Am I really supposed to just send $76? Well, you know the end of the story. He sent $76, and I think it was a washing machine or something that the people needed, and a neighbor had it for sale for... $76 that they did not have. The Lord leads us and he guides us, but we walk right past those mysterious blessings if we're not in connection with him, if we're not praying to him, if we're not asking him to, to lead us into those places, we walk right by them or we let our own needs or our own frailties let us walk away from those things. Now, I'm not trying to preach some mystical doctrine to you. God speaks to us through his word, but he guides us and he directs us That's what he promises to do. He is our shepherd. Jesus is our good shepherd, our great shepherd. He he rescues us from evil. He feeds us. We know his name and he knows ours. He will go after us when we're sinning. He is the one who sets us up with comfort and joy if we are following him and not our own self. So lead, guide, and direct us is a good prayer, is it not? But it's a prayer that should have our spiritual eyes open everywhere we go after we pray it. Because you know what? God will answer that prayer, and you won't see it if you pray that out of rote and not out of your own heart.
make the mountains a road. There's not going to be nothing blocking them. Um, any mountain in their way, God will just make it a road. The highways shall be raised up. You can't miss them. Every time I read a verse like this, I think of our time in Illinois. If you've ever been through Illinois or lived in Illinois, let's just say it's flat. The, and the further north you go, the flatter it seems to get. And in the winter, it just seems like you can see for miles and miles and miles. But what you know, you know what you can always see? The overpasses. You can always see them. You can see them coming forever because everything else is flat. This is the imagery that's here. The roads will be lifted up. You can't miss it. If you're on the road to salvation and God is drawing, you cannot miss it. And then he says again what we've learned so many times in verse 12. Behold, these shall come from afar. And behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Syene. Or maybe your version says Sinim. Um, I don't think, in all my reading, I don't think anybody knows for sure where this place is, and I don't think we're supposed to. I think what we're supposed to understand is the far, the most far off place from all corners of the earth, God is going to redeem people. These people shall come, those who will be on the road, who will be fed along the way, who will be called out of imprisonment, who will be, who will be called out of darkness into light, into the, the glorious light of the kingdom of God. All of those will come from all over, and God will not be denied any of those who he chooses to save. And finally, creation will rejoice because I showed comfort and compassion to my people. Look at verse 13. We've seen these kinds of breakout um, praises and psalms um, throughout Isaiah, but we're going to see them clearly with these servant songs. In response to what Isaiah has, has said, what God in his servant and God himself has said through Isaiah, sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. Why? For A little connector helps us, for Yahweh has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. That's the promise of the year of Jubilee, fulfilled in Christ. And remember, Isaiah, this whole section in Isaiah started with those words, right? In Isaiah 40. When we went, however many times ago that was, In Isaiah 40, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. And a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain and the glory of Yahweh shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. We're now understanding how God intends to do that and what his plan is. So this passage is bringing us into this clear depiction of resting in the Lord of trusting in God and his promises, of walking in the power of our redemption, of believing that God is a sovereign God. He owns everything. He sets everything in front of us and he guides us and directs us through the power of his spirit as we walk through it. And he tells us in his word how we should do that. 
One of the places that this idea of rest is brought so clearly in the New Testament is in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3 and chapter 4. In the beginning of chapter 3, he makes the argument that, that Jesus is greater than Moses. Remember that? Moses is faithful over his house, but Jesus is faithful over all God's house. And then he moves into this sermon where he teaches us about rest. He moves into this sermon where he uses the people in the wilderness and he tells them, he tells them that, that the reason that they were in the wilderness and the reason they never entered into their rest was because of their sin. And he, this is a New Testament book telling us how we are to rest in the Lord. It is a New Testament book that gives us the, some feet to what we're talking about. Because in this sermon, if I can get to the right passage here, in this sermon, he has a sermon based on Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. And he says that we're to remember those in the wilderness, they, they were those who were in the wilderness because they heard and yet rebelled, because they sinned, verse 17, because they were disobedient, verse 18. So we see, verse 19 of chapter three, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And then chapter four begins, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any one of you should seem to have a faith failed to reach it. And then he quotes some more passages of scripture and he, end, he, he takes this to the end of his sermon and he says, so then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we, to whom we must give an account." And then he, he, he admonishes us to trust in our great high priest. So when we come to Christ, we have entered into our spiritual rest. We have entered into that. We don't just enter into it and then forget about it. We enter into it and then we walk in that. We have been freed from sin. We have been freed from the slavery of sin. We know, we know we, we have to fight sin, right? We're still in the presence of sin in this life, but we're free from the power and the penalty of that. We have been brought from darkness into light. That changes how we talk about everything. It changes how we walk in our life. It changes how we make decisions. It changes how we raise our children. We are resting in the, in the promises of God, we are not resting in our own wisdom. We are resting in the promises of God. And as we started today, how many of us need rest because we're trying to do all of this in our own strength instead of his? How many of us need rest because we've taken the word of God and set it beside? I'm not saying there aren't times you're going to need physical rest, right? Don't hear me say that. You, we do need to have physical rest, and there's sometimes that the responsibilities that we have before us require us to get some rest or we're going to be no good to anyone but in the spiritual sense, we really struggle if we're not depending on the word of God and the power of his spirit. That's all what's brought to us by the word of Yahweh himself in confirming the mission of his servant in Isaiah 49. And so when we come to the Lord's table, like we're about to do, we're coming to feed on those truths. We're coming to remember that that servant did come, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, 
suffered, died on a cross according to the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, raised from the dead on the third day and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. So if all of this stuff to you today is it's kind of mysterious. You go, I just don't really understand that. You know, all this spiritual gobbledygook. This might be the day that you need to repent of your own sin and, faith, and, and trusting in all of your own works and your own wisdom and your own righteousness and turn to the one who has provided perfect righteousness for you. This might be the day that you repent of your sin and turn to Christ. The one who is pursuing you if you were to come to Christ today. Repent of your sin and turn to him. The bridge, the roads are made clear for you this morning. The mountains are knocked low. One thing is clear. Christ saves sinners. And if you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Christ, today is the day that you need to do that and enter into the rest that gives you clarity with the rest of your life, that gives you a love for Christ the Savior, that guarantees your inheritance in heaven, that makes sure that your inheritance is part of the preserved inheritance that the Spirit is ready to bestow upon us in fullness in the new heaven and new earth. Amen. Now, if, if you have not done that yet, do it right now. Right now, repent of your sin. That just means turn away. Turn away from your sin and turn to Christ. You don't need to walk in the aisle to do that. This is the Lord working on your heart. Do that right now. Trust in him right now. If you've already done that, maybe, maybe, maybe you've got troubles between you and someone else sitting in this room. Maybe someone's offended you or you have offended someone else. Maybe you need to go to them right now and talk to them. That may be what you need to do to come to the table. You see, the table is for those who are trusting in Christ. The table is to come and remember the sacrifice of Christ and his coming again. And it's to feed upon those truths that we are new creatures in Christ. Feed upon those truths. Send us out of here spiritually fed. God promises to do that, amen? He promises to feed us not by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So spend just a few minutes. If you need to get up and talk to somebody, do it now. Don't worry. Don't worry about what somebody might think of you. Listen to the Lord lead you to that. Spend some time in prayer, and then if you're serving, please come forward and we'll partake of the Lord's Supper.